Beloved congregation, in God's providence, not only is this an hour of reflection, when we reflect upon what has transpired in this morning hour, but in God's providence, we've also arrived at that point in the Beatitudes where the focus now shifts from the internal disposition of the Christian resulting in hungering and thirsting after righteousness to how that manifests itself in the life of the believer. Because that is one of the purposes of reflecting on what has transpired on the, has inspired in this morning hour. Not only reflecting on what happened for our further benefit of that blessed sacrament, but also in order that our reflection on the mercy of God would produce the fruits of mercy also in our lives. And so therefore, with God's help, we're going to consider the fifth beatitude. Uh, we find it in Matthew 5, verse 7. And there we read God's word in our text. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so the theme, of course, is very simple and straightforward. The merciful pronounced blessed. Remember that word blessed that Christ is using here means supremely happy are they of whom all of these things are true. First of all, we're going to consider the identity of the merciful. What does Christ mean here when he says, blessed are the merciful? And then, what is the blessedness of the merciful? Well, the text tells us, they shall obtain mercy. They will experience the favor of God within their very own soul. So the, the identity of the merciful and the blessedness of the merciful. And as we saw last week, that Christ not only taught us that the Hungering and thirsting after righteousness is the core activity, the core spiritual activity of a living soul. But that that hungering and thirsting after righteousness will never go unsatisfied. Because the Spirit who works that spiritual hunger and thirst... The Spirit who creates that inner disposition of being poor in spirit, mourning and meekness, resulting in a hungering and thirsting after that righteousness of which we spoke also in this morning. That same Spirit will lead us to the one in whom that yearning and desire is filled, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, it all focuses on Him. It all revolves around Him. Because that is the great work of the Holy Spirit. The great work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Christ in the hearts and life of His people. And that's why we pointed out last week, as is true for all the Beatitudes... This hungering and thirsting after Christ, to know more of Him, this hungering and thirsting after His righteousness, is a lifelong yearning, but also a lifelong experiencing that when we yearn after that Christ, wrought upon by the Spirit of Christ, we shall be filled, we shall be filled to overflowing with the unspeakable love of God that was also set before us in this morning hour. And when we may taste something of that amazing love that was set before us visibly in this morning hour, that amazing love of God that moved Him to make His own beloved Son to be sin in our place in order that we might be partakers of the righteousness of God through Him. Well, then we'll hopefully, 
in some measure. We will know what the apostle means when we experience a peace that passes all understanding because we will be filled to overflowing. But see, that, that literally flows now into the next section of the Beatitudes. It flows into those three Beatitudes in which Christ describes how the citizens of God's kingdom will conduct themselves. As I've already pointed out to you, Christ is teaching us that when there is that inner disposition that will manifest itself in three fundamental ways. And so if you ask me, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live a Christ-like life? What are the most important marks of the Christian life? Then Christ tells us what they are. He is saying, the citizens of my kingdom, those who are filled to overflowing with my righteousness, they will be merciful, they will be pure in heart. That means the, the purity of life, their, their godliness comes from within. In other words, the outward purity of the life of the Christian comes from within. They are pure in heart. And they will be peacemakers. And of course, we also saw the connection between those first three Beatitudes and the last three. Those that are poor in spirit, who recognize their own bankruptcy, as we will see tonight, they will be merciful. Those who grieve over sin will also be pure in heart. And those who know their proper place before God will also be peacemakers. But we also need to recognize that in those last three Beatitudes of that package of seven, if you will, I know there are two more following that, but of course, there Christ describes how those citizens will be treated by a hostile world. But, so here, but now we are in these last three, five, six, and seven. What Christ is really setting before us is that his people, the citizens of his kingdom, will reflect the character of God. Every three of them are related to God's character, to his mercy, to his holiness, and to the fact that God himself is the great peacemaker. If you recall, these Beatitudes, they are not arranged arbitrarily. The one always anticipates the next one. The one follows the other. It's Watson uses the example of a stairway. He said, it's like a stairway. Step by step, we go higher and higher until we arrive at the seventh one where he then says, where Christ then says, those who manifest all of these marks, they shall be called the children of God. And the word he uses there is they shall reflect the character of God. Because after all, to be a child of God means that God is your heavenly Father. And just like our children, in some measure, reflect who we are, reflect our character, reflect our appearance, so it is true with God's children. They will, in some measure, reflect the character of their heavenly Father. And so it's remarkable that Christ identifies as the very first of these marks, of these God-like characters, he mentions here mercy. So obviously, that means that mercy is the foundational fruit of faith. That mercy is an attribute that is very, very near to the heart of God. That's why Watson calls mercy the darling attribute of God. And as you know, when you read Exodus 34, that remarkable passage, verse 6 and 7, 
where God reveals himself to Moses, where he unveils his glory to Moses, when he allows Moses, as it were, to look into his heart, God describes himself by way of various attributes. And is it not remarkable that the very first thing that God says about himself is that he is merciful? The Lord, the Lord God, he said to Moses, merciful and gracious. That's why Watson calls it the darling attribute of God, an attribute that is nearest to the heart of God. You know what Christ is saying? That when we experience that mercy, when we become the recipients of that mercy, that will manifest itself in our lives. So Christ is saying those that experience the mercy of God, the overflowing goodness of God revealed in Christ set before us this morning, when we experience that mercy, we will be merciful ourselves. Christ is saying it is impossible to be a partaker of the mercy of God. It is impossible to be filled to overflowing with the mercy of God and not to be merciful as a reflection of that. And so the point is very, very clear. If that disposition is lacking, that disposition of being merciful, that disposition of being compassionate, then we are lacking a very foundational mark of the grace of God. That's why Christ's rebuke of the Pharisees was so very serious. Listen to what he says in one of those woes that we find in Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin, Listen to the, listen now and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. And of course, Christ powerfully illustrated that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where these men, the Pharisee and the scribe, whom the people regarded so highly, they missed this foundational mark. So when they saw the wounded, smitten man on the side of the road, rather than showing mercy and compassion to that man, they passed him by and thereby demonstrated that in spite of how they presented themselves, in spite of their religious veneer, that a very foundational mark of the grace of God was lacking in their life. And so someone might ask, so pastor, what is the difference now between mercy and grace? And that's perhaps a good point for me to briefly explain that. Because the two belong inseparably together. I, I would say that grace and mercy are ultimately two sides of one coin. And what is that coin? That coin is the goodness of God. So what grace and mercy have in common is that it is the, manifest, the manifestation of God's goodness to those who are utterly unworthy of it. So what grace and mercy have in common is that they both exclude all human merit, all human worth. So whenever we read about the grace of God, whenever we read about the mercy of God, we must always remember that it is the demonstration of God's goodness towards sinners who are utterly unworthy of such a favor. And yet there is a a very important theological distinction between the two. So when we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about God's goodness to guilty sinners. So the focus is on our sinnership, the very nature of our sinnership. And so when God is gracious to guilty sinners, that means that he graciously pardons them. 
thereby bestowing on them the very opposite of what they deserve. We deserve to be condemned. And yet in Christ, God can be gracious to guilty sinners who deserve divine judgment and grant upon them, grant to them the exact opposite of what they deserve. That's what we witnessed this morning. Oh, I would remind you again, dear believer, your being seated at that table was a display of the grace of God. You were there because of the grace of God. You were there to witness with your eyes the very reason why God bestowed upon you the very opposite of what you deserve. Now, the mercy of God focuses on the wretchedness of our sinnership. Not only are we guilty, not only are we worthy of punishment, but we are also wretched. We are undone. We are poor, blind, and naked. Oh, what a wretched thing it is to be a sinner. And the mercy of God is especially focused on that. But as you can see, the the two belong inseparably together. So when we speak of the mercy of God, we must think at the same time of the grace of God. And when we speak of the grace of God, we can think of the mercy of God. And you can see that the grace and mercy of God, the two sides of one coin, that they communicate to us. Everything that God does for guilty and wretched sinners for Christ's sake. That's why... Again, in Exodus 34, God mentions them together. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Those two belong together. Psalm 103, verse 8, the psalmist quotes that passage. The Lord is merciful and gracious and plenteous in mercy. And so the focus here is on mercy. The focus here is on God's goodness manifested especially towards us in our wretched state, in our wretched condition as fallen sons and daughters of Adam. And then we know, of course, that Christ himself is the ultimate expression of that divine goodness. We could actually say that Christ is God's mercy in the flesh. Christ is God's grace in the flesh. Christ is the incarnation of the goodness of God, of the grace and of the mercy of God. In Him, God fully communicates to us who He is. In Him, we see the embodiment of the mercy and of the grace of God. Oh, in Christ, we see the affirmation of what Micah exclaimed in holy amazement. In Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, grace, and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, for he delighteth in mercy. He delights in mercy. That's why I said Christ is setting before us here the character of God. What a beautiful description of God's character. That's why, because this is at the very core of his being. That's why He gave His only begotten Son in the fullness of time. That's why He has eternally purposed to save sinners. Because this is who He is. And this finds its full expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we think again of the words of John 14 where Jesus says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so therefore... Being merciful, being merciful is the manifestation of a true Christian character. Or we could say it is the manifestation of God's character. 
That means that being merciful, being compassionate towards those who are equally wretched, equally undone all around us, is a reflection of the very character of God. It's interesting that in the Hebrew, the ideas of mercy and godliness are are synonymous. They are interchangeable. So what that means is this congregation. Christ is giving us here an essential component of holiness. Christ is saying a holy life is a life in which that mercy will be demonstrated. Because what's holiness? So when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about the otherness of God. God is wholly other than His creature and His creation. And so when the Spirit of God makes us a son and daughter of the living God, the God who is infinitely holy, that means that His children, by virtue of that grace, become a holy people. And so we could say that the holiness in the life of the believer is God-likeness. It's a reflection of the character of God. God-likeness. Then I think again of, of the words of, of Luke 6, verse 35 that we read together. What a beautiful statement we have there of the mercy of God. Let's read that again. Let's turn for a moment to Luke 6, verse 35. We read it together. What a striking statement. Luke 6, verse 35, but love ye your enemies. In other words, do to your enemies the opposite of what they deserve. And do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall be, here it comes, this is so important. And ye shall be the children of the highest. Why? For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Christ is saying, you will then be reflecting the character of your heavenly Father. And that's why this being merciful, just like the other Beatitudes, is never a natural disposition. Now, there are some people who have a very kind and gracious character. Some have that much more than others do. But we're not talking about a natural character trait. We're talking here about a fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about a disposition that will never be found in the heart and life of a natural man. This is a fruit of the Spirit. This is a manifestation that we truly belong to Christ. This is a manifestation that we ourselves have been the recipients of the mercy of God. And because He has been merciful to us, we are therefore have then a disposition of being merciful towards others. Turn with me. John 3, verse 17, where this is highlighted in a negative way. We'll read the text, and then we will turn it into a positive statement. 1 John 3, verse 17. Then we read this. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? So there you have it. When you see the need of your perishing neighbor, when you are aware of his spiritual and physical needs, of his wretchedness, and you turn from him, how can you then say that the love of God dwells in you? So we can turn this around and make it a positive statement. But whoso has this world's good and seeth his brother have need and opens up his bowels of compassion to him, in him or her dwells the love of God. 
That's why James writes in James 3, verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. Colossians 3, verse 12, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. And so the merciful is a person who has learned to see his own wretched condition, who has learned to understand how destitute he is himself. And because he has seen who he is, because we now understand experientially our own spiritual need, our own spiritual condition, that will make us compassionate towards our fellow men. And we will recognize that they have the same need as we do. And so the merciful are they who are concerned about the spiritual and temporal welfare of my neighbor. So the merciful are they who put their neighbor ahead of themselves. The merciful are other-centered people. The merciful are not those who first and foremost think of themselves. By nature, as fallen sinners, we ultimately only care about themselves. Often the, the word narcissism is used in our day. Well, let me tell you, we are all born as narcissists. We are all born with a natural tendency only to care about ourselves. But when the Spirit of God makes us a new creature, when we become the recipients of the mercy of God in Christ, when our hungering and thirsting after righteousness results in being filled with the mercy of God that will overflow and will make us become like God in some measure. That's what holiness is, God-likeness. We will become other-centered. And we cannot but have a burden for our fellow man. Remarkable that Christ begins there. That's why the merciful will always be ready to intercede for their neighbor as Christ did. The merciful will be burdened with the needs of their fellow men. The merciful will reflect Christ's own character so beautifully, as I already pointed out this morning, so beautifully set forth on the cross. We, a few weeks ago, we considered those sayings on the cross, and we see the mercy of Christ coming from his very lips in those dire circumstances, having been nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What a beautiful illustration we have there of the mercy of God. And see, the merciful are Christ-like. The merciful reflect his character. And so the merciful will become an interceding people. They will become intercessors, intercessors for their spouses, intercessors for their family members, intercessors for the people with whom they work, intercessors for all those who are in dire straits. That, becomes, that belongs to the very character of the merciful. That's why in James 5 verse 16, we are exhorted to do precisely that. When James says, pray one for another, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But the merciful are not only will be ready to, to intercede for their neighbor, to bring to God the great need of our perishing fellow man, the merciful will also be ready to forgive their neighbor. In other words, the merciful will always be ready to be merciful to others, to be merciful to those who offend us, to be merciful to those who grieve us. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, 
but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Colossians 3 verse 13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even, and here this is the key phrase, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And so, when we are filled with the mercy of God, when we have been reminded again of what God has done for us in Christ, that God has been merciful to a man, a woman, a boy or a girl like me, then we cannot be merciful towards others. That's the point of the parable in Matthew 18. I hope to preach on that sometime. But let me just briefly say this. Boys and girls, you know that story. Here is a man who owes the king 10,000 talents. And I don't have the time to do the math, but in today's value, that means approximately $9 billion. That's what he owed his king. And the king demanded that payment be made. Pay me what you owe me. Of course, he was in despair because he could not. He said, have patience with me. And I will pay thee. And of course, it was impossible for that man to pay that staggering, staggering death. Christ purposely used an amount that would have communicated that to the people to whom he spoke. Impossible for that debt ever to be canceled. And then it says the king had compassion on him. The king was merciful to him. And he forgave him all that debt. He walked in, owing $9 billion. He walked out, having no debt whatsoever. And then you know the story. He meets a fellow servant. And he owed him the equivalent of $12,000 in our values today. $9 billion versus 12000 He grabs him by the throat. And he says, pay me what you owe me. And he had no mercy on him. And threw him in jail. Then, of course, in the parable, the king then reverses his pardon and casts that man in jail. And then Christ makes the application that if you are not willing to forgive those that have sinned against you, my father will not forgive you. Christ was not saying that a believer can lose his salvation. But the point Christ is making when you behave like that, when you behave like that servant, you have not understood the mercy of God. And so anyone who is unwilling to forgive those that have sinned against you only demonstrate that they have never experienced the forgiving grace of God. We are here to reflect what you saw with your eyes today symbolized the $9 billion mercy of God. The extraordinary mercy of God by which he has canceled your debt fully and completely. And that means when people sin against us, when people offend us, that's only a pittance. It's not even worth talking about compared to what we owe to God. And so when God is merciful to us, when God graciously pardons our debt, the more we understand it, the more we grasp it, the more merciful we will become. And that's the point Paul makes. Why should you be forgiving one another? Why? Why should you be gracious to those that have a quarrel against you? Well, you must do it as Christ has forgiven you. So also do ye. So ready to intercede, ready to forgive. So ultimately it means that to be merciful towards my neighbor means an attitude of patience. An attitude of unconditional acceptance of the other person. Always remembering who I am. Always putting your hand in your own bosom. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another 
in love. That's what being merciful is. This biblical mercy, this fruit of the Holy Spirit is an expression of love. An expression of unconditional love. And so this being merciful is therefore a manifestation of who we are. Right? We need to understand that. Christ is not defining that being merciful by a whole list of things you do. No, he is describing it as a disposition of our heart. And when that disposition is there, when that disposition is right, that inner disposition of being merciful because God has been merciful to me, that disposition will translate in merciful acts. But it all begins with that inner disposition of the heart. And then Christ says, For they shall obtain mercy. Now, often this is misunderstood. So let me quickly say what Christ is not saying here. He's not saying that by being merciful to others, by showing your love and compassion for your needy and perishing neighbor, that thereby you earn the favor of God, you earn the mercy of God. Because that would contradict, of course, the very nature of God's mercy. That's obviously not what he means. Because we always have to realize the Bible cannot mean what it cannot mean. Salvation is not by works. But what Christ is simply saying, when we demonstrate that divine character, when we are merciful as our Father in heaven is merciful, we will experience God's favor within our own soul. And so you see, that's one of the, one of the fruits that will come out of abiding in Christ, you see. And that's one of, the, one of the purposes, again, of a reflection sermon. One of the purposes of the Lord's Supper is that Christ wants to encourage you by having nourished you at his table by having drawn so near to you, by having given you a fresh taste of his mercy. He wants to stir you up to abide in him. Because you see, the more we abide in Christ, the more we are going to behave like Christ. The one results in the other. That's why Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And that includes this fruit. Because Christ identifies this as the foundational fruit of the Christian character, of that God-like character in the life of the believer. And so when we abide in him, when we daily live in fellowship with Christ, when we feed upon his word daily, when we commune with him, the nearer we are to him, the more we interact with him, the more we abide in him, the more we are going to behave like him. Because after all, the spirit that dwells in him is the spirit that dwells in his people. So that means if we do not abide in him, and if in our foolishness, we wander away from the shepherd. When we, when we become backslidden Christians, and when we are not merciful, when we are not compassionate towards our neighbor, then it does not mean you will lose your salvation. But as a Christian, you will then lose the sense of God's favor. If that attribute is so near to the heart of God, if that attribute is a darling attribute of God, then if we, his children, who call ourselves by his name, if we, his children, do not behave as merciful Christians, as men and women who are compassionate, who are kind, who are gracious, who are patient, who 
are forgiving, who are interceding, if we do not behave like that, that conduct is very offensive to your heavenly Father. You will lose a sense of his favor. And, and Christians, true Christians, will sometimes live in great darkness because of unresolved conflict. Unresolved conflict. And instead of being merciful, instead of being compassionate, feeding that, that poisonous root of bitterness that will fill your soul and that will make us behave in a way that so contradicts this. And God is jealous of his children. He's jealous of his people. He has chosen you in Christ to become like Christ. And God as your heavenly father will not tolerate that. And one of the first things will be a withdrawal of a sense of his favor. It means that we will come in great spiritual darkness until we repent. Until we repent of that unmerciful attitude. Until we repent of that unforgiving spirit. Until we humble ourselves. Until we again come ourselves as a wretched and undone sinner at the feet of Christ. When we again realize who we are remain in ourselves. And once more our only hope is in the mercy of God in Christ. That's why when we abide in him. When we, when, we, when we seek to live close to him in congregation, I cannot emphasize enough that Christ desires that. He has made full provision for us to walk with him daily, to live in fellowship with him. Because the more you abide in him, the more you will become like him. Many years ago, there was a, med a Christian medical doctor who worked in the inner regions of Africa among natives. And he worked there for quite a season. And he worked there before missionaries came to preach the gospel. When he left and when a missionary came and began to preach the gospel, began to tell these people about Christ. And at one point he was describing who Christ was and there was a stirring among the crowd and, and some of the people got so excited and finally someone said, we know him. We know him. And the missionary looked surprised. You know him. You know him. Yeah, we know what you, the man that you described. We know a man like that. He, he was here. He worked among us. And then he understood that the conduct of that Christian doctor had been so Christ-like among them that when the missionary described Christ, they thought he was describing that man. Congregation. Am I that Christ-like? Are you that Christ-like? That others will recognize something of the Savior in us. And so what this does not mean, that we merit God's favor. But what Christ is saying, you cannot, you cannot expect to experience God's favor in your soul. You cannot expect the light of his countenance upon us to shine upon you if you act contrary to who you ought to be, when you do not behave yourself as one of his children. Because be ye merciful, as your Father in heaven is merciful. Listen to God's word. Listen to Psalm 18, verse 25, which no doubt Christ was referring to. All of these beatitudes are rooted in the Old Testament. With the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. Psalm 18, verse 25. Proverbs 11, verse 17. The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. So, again, you see the extraordinary wisdom of how Christ puts this together. But 
However, let me be very clear. If we consistently are not merciful, if we consistently are not compassionate, then we have to ask ourselves, can I really claim to be a Christian? Because the difference between a Christian and an ungodly person is they both sin. But the ungodly habitually sin. They habitually are inclined towards sin. The Christian occasionally sins through weakness. He sometimes falls into sin. It's no longer the habitual tendency of his life. And so if the tenor of our life is that we are not merciful, that we are not compassionate, then Christ is saying, you have never experienced the mercy of God. That's why he says in Matthew 6, verse 15, what he says in Matthew 18 as well, but if ye forgive not men their trespasses, if you're not merciful to them, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. James 2, verse 13, for he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. Let me repeat that. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. And that's why also the fifth petition of the Lord's, of the Lord's prayer again reveals the extraordinary wisdom of Christ. What has he taught us to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Compelling us when we pray that prayer, compelling us to ask ourselves, have I forgiven my debtors? Have I been merciful? Have I been gracious? And Christ is saying, don't bother coming before God and asking to Him to forgive your sins if you are not willing to forgive those that have sinned against you. So brilliantly in that petition, Christ sees to it that if that prayer is uprightly prayed, that it takes care of our relationship with God and it takes care of our relationship with our fellow man. Or to put it in terms of this text, you may pray, God, be merciful to me as I am being merciful to my fellow man. That's why congregation. Those final verses of Matthew 25 are so striking. As you know, turn it, oh, t- please open your Bibles to Matthew 25. I want to end with that. Matthew 25. Beginning at verse 31. And so in, that, in those verses, 31 through the end of the chapter, Christ literally gives us a preview of the day of judgment. And then we read in verse 34, after he divides the sheep and the goats, in verse 33. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was a hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. That's the description of a merciful person, congregation. That's the kind of person Christ is talking about. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hundred, and fed thee, and thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, you have done unto me. Then he talks to those on his left side, the goats. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And again he goes through the same list. And they will say to him, when did we see thee? And then he will answer them, verse 45. Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as they did it not to the one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. 
And so in the day of judgment, the separation will be between the merciful and those who were not merciful. Between those who reflected the character of God and those who did not reflect the character of God. Because to be merciful is to be God-like. That's why Jesus, and we read it together, that's why he says, be ye, in light of what I have demonstrated to you this morning, in light of my love for you, in light of my mercy towards you, be ye therefore merciful, as your Father also is merciful. And in Micah 6, verse 8, we read, and with that I will end. He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of thee? But to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, wilt thou bless thy own word. Thy word which speaks to us with such astonishing clarity, with unmistakable clarity. Lord, may we take it to heart. We pray that those of us who profess the name of Christ, that by grace we would begin to live like Christ, that our life would demonstrate that we are abiding in Christ, that we ourselves have experienced the astonishing mercy of God in Christ, and that 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 would manifest itself and how we interact with our fellow men, and so that we might be merciful indeed and reflect thy character and experience thy favor in our soul. And should there be any among us who are guilty of not being merciful, oh, that we would repent of it and seek thy divine pardon, and that we would also in the week that goes before us would reflect on the fact what thou hast forgiven us, that that would make us willing to forgive the very, very small debt that others owe to us. Go with us this coming week. Bless us in the labor of our hands. Be with those who will be traveling. Gather with us again this coming Lord's Day and hear us for Christ's sake alone. Amen.